0: Ahoy! And welcome to All Rings Considered, Entertainment Weekly's podcast breaking down the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. This week, we are setting sail for Tolkien's Grand Island Kingdom of Numenor. We are joined by two familiar voices from the show. First, we have Lloyd Owen, who plays the great Numenorian sea captain Elendil. And we're also joined by Megan Richards, who plays Poppy Proudfellow the Harfut. We're going to get to those interviews in a bit, but I am so excited to dig into this episode and break down all of the new reveals and locations we get to visit. I'm your co-host, Devin Kogan, and I am joined by my co-captain, Christian Holleb. Christian, welcome.
1: That's right. Thank you for uh, welcoming me onto your big ship after finding me adrift in a sea of chaos.
0: We rescued you from um, a sea dragon, and now we are setting sail for uh, the greatest uh, human civilization civilization in in Middle-earth's history.
1: Yeah, and also the westernmost human civilization now that the world is round instead of flat, so you can't just keep going to heaven anymore. That's a little reference for all my Silmarillion heads out there who know that it includes an explanation for how the world used to be flat and now it's round.
0: Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite weird things from from Tolkien's uh, writing is, you know, the the origin of, of the earth becoming a sphere.
1: I don't even think I caught it on like my first read of the Silmarillion. Like it wasn't until I reread that I was like, wait a minute. OK, <laughs> um, but this is what we've been excited for ever since the show came out, ever since we were writing explainers about what to expect from the second age. You know, the centerpiece was that we're going to see Numenor and and there was a dis. Distinctive lack of Numenor in the first two episodes Not so the third episode Uh, We finally get to see this place in all its glory And feels like there's a lot of glory to be seen
0: Yeah, that's the thing that's so magical is when, you know, Amazon first announced that, that, you know, one, they were doing the show and two, that it was going to be set during the second age. I think, you know, um, I have like text screenshots of you and I being like, Numenor, let's go. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um,
0: If you are kind of unfamiliar with, you know, kind of Tolkien's writing outside of Lord of the Rings, you know, Numenor is one of those stories that sort of, Looms large throughout his his writing and throughout um, you know his legendarium. You know, there's there's talk about it in in the Lord of the Rings as this this once great kingdom, and it's it's fully told in the appendices, which is what the show is is you know inspired by, and it's it's told in parts of the Silmarillion. Um, and it's this this beautiful kind of ultimately tragic story about you know the the greatest kingdom that that uh, you know one of the greatest human kingdoms that ever existed um in all of Arda it's it's this beautiful you know story of of you know Tolkien writes about it so reverently and we've never gotten to see it on screen and here it is in its full glory this beautiful stunning island full of like you know giant cities and coastlines and, like, beautiful cliffs and carvings. And, and and we talked about this a little bit last week.
1: We love a giant stone head.
0: Dude, we, we love, like, any, like, it makes the Argonaut in Lord of the Rings look like a Lego set. Like, oh, my God. Which
1: it's kind of supposed to be, right? Like, those big stone things that they, that they see on their way into the Emin Mule are supposed to be kind of replicas or imitations of what's in of of Numenorean architecture. And now we get to see it head on. And they really went all out, you know, clearly making this place seem impressive and and grand and magnificent, even if we're starting to get the sense from some of the characters in Numenor that the kingdom has maybe seen better days and, and is having a little bit of trouble living up to its own reputation.
0: That's the thing. There's sometimes there is trouble in paradise, as we we quickly find out in these these um you know in episode three. So um I you know I absolutely adored the first two episodes, but there was something that really felt kind of magical about this because this is sort of I've sort of been waiting for this. You know we we sort of have an idea of like okay this is what the elves are like and these are what the dwarves are like and all of these things, but this is Numenor is one of those things where we've never seen this on screen before. Yeah. And and we talked about this a little bit last week, but the idea that, you know, everything in the Lord of the Rings, you know, the grand architecture of Minas Tirith, the Argonauth is all, you know, like a pale imitation of this. So to get to see mm-hmm. it in its full glory is pretty magical. and And not just as like, Ruins, but as a fully thriving civilization. You know, the episode begins with Halbrand and Galadriel getting rescued um, from being shipwrecked by uh, a familiar face, uh, a Lendil played by Lloyd Owen. You know, some of the the characters in the show are inventions for the show. Some of them are um, you know people we've met before. And Alendil is one of those characters we've never really seen depicted on screen in any sort of um, you know he uh, it, with any sort of depth. You know, we see him briefly mentioned in the prologue right there's
1: a glimpse of there's a glimpse of him in the prologue maybe a little more in the extended edition um, but you kind of just see his face being like bah! and then he gets <laughs> knocked aside by Sauron
0: him and Gil gallit are like in there for about like 20 seconds of screen time total
1: just to get freaking dunked on by uh, Sauron yeah
0: but his their legacy sort of looms over that whole story you know basically it's it's you know every time someone meets Aragorn in the books they're like wow he really looks like a Sildur and a Lendil. Like, wow, like he's, right. he's basically that guy. And so right. here we have this, you know, this sort of legendary figure, um, you know, and his son, a Sildur, as flesh and blood. We get to meet them. Um, and it's really interesting that, you know, a Lendil is this uh, ship's captain. He's not anyone terribly important. The queen doesn't really know who he is at this point. He's, uh, you know, he's a sailor. He's he's deeply faithful to the elves, which we find out is something that is a little, you know, kind of scandalous at this point in, in Numenorian. History, so so Christian. Let's break down some of the the history of Numenor and sort yeah. of what's interesting about it. Because at this point, you know, you, when when Galadriel arrives, she's heard tales of this great kingdom. Um, she's never been there herself, um, and you get the sense that it's not quite what it was a couple centuries ago. Things have definitely changed. So, like, tell us a little bit about you know, kind of. What's the deal with Numenor? Why, why are things the way they are?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because if you're reading about Numenor in the stuff Tolkien wrote, whether it's the Return of the King indi- indices or the Akalabeth at the end of, uh, which is kind of the epilogue to the Silmarillion, you know, we've been saying and I've been saying personally that like, oh, you know, the Silmarillion is set in the first age and Hobbit and Lord of the Rings are set in the third age. And so this show is in the second age in this unexplored thing. But there is this epilogue to the Silmarillion that's just about Numenor called the Akalabeth. Then that's definitely set in the Second Age, because that's when all this happens. But to go back to the end of the First Age, which is when this all begins, you know, the war with Morgoth, which we hear about again in this episode and, and see, you know, we're still obviously living with its ramifications. The reason it lasted so long is because it was so one sided. It was even as powerful as the elves are. They were fighting a god. It was like. The bad god, as Alan Moore would call it, was real and was active in the world, and the good gods were not. They were staying out. So there was going to be no resolution unless you had a power to equal Morgoth. And how that happened was this hero, the secret hero of the Legendarium, who is the inspiration for all of it, but barely ever comes up because Tolkien just didn't get to it because I think he felt so perfectionist about him, is Erendil, is the greatest sailor of all time. And he is able to sail to Valinor and tell them face to face, the Valar, the good gods, how bad things have gotten and how awful Morgoth has been. And so the Valar finally acquiesce to manifesting themselves in the world. And that's how they're able to. And they team up with elves and they team up with certain men and they're able to defeat Morgoth's army. Uh, Irendil is given this special fate. He's like put in the sky because he has Silmaril with him. So then the, he and the Silmaril kind of become this star, which is related to the object of power that Galadriel will give Frodo in Lord of the Rings is kind of the light of Irendil. But Erendil had two sons, the half-elves, and one of them we've seen already is Elrond. And kind of funny that Elrond's not in this episode because we finally get a direct reference to his brother,
0: Elros. Well, we see a picture of him. But we, he's not actually in this episode. We see Right, him, we yeah. See him, he, he's like painted on a mural. Right. And Galadriel's like, hey, I know that guy.
1: <laughs> I think that's kind of funny. I wonder if we'll see them in parallel at all. I mean, I would certainly love for Elrond to see Numenor for reasons that I'm about to explain, which is that Elrond, these two people are like the only people in history that were kind of given this choice by Iluvatar that are like, you're half human, half elf, so you can choose if you want to live immortal as an elf, or if you want to live mortal as a human. And Elrond, as we know, chose to live as an elf, even though he still gets dinged for being half-elf or not quite a full-blooded elven lord or whatever, as we've seen a little bit. But Elros chose to be a human, and he became the first king of Numenor, which was basically, it's basically the opposite of the Southlands, which is the Southlands are all the people that are descended from the humans who supported Morgoth. So they're stuck in this, crappy, you know, scrap of rock, crag, rock, you know, making whatever living they can. Numenor is uh, by contrast is descended from the humans who sided with the elves and the valar against Morgoth. So they got this awesome island kingdom and Elros even though he chose mortality, it still lived for like 800 years, you know, mortality meant something a little different back then, and all of his descendants are the royal line of of Numenor. So Numenor is this great enlightened place, but still ruled by a a Royal family and Kings and stuff. And when you're reading it in the Akalabeth or the indices, they kind of show you the whole family tree and, and you see how it all kind of devolves over time. Because as you would imagine, starting with a half elf, the brother of an elven Lord, Numenor was very friendly to elves, friendly to the Valar. As Galadriel says in this episode, it's the westernmost. Uh, civilization. I was kind of joking about this earlier, which means like west of west, that's Valinor is in the great west, even though it's mostly inaccessible to mortals at this point. Numenor is basically as close as you can get to Valinor at this point, while still being in the in the real world. And so it starts out, they have this great thing, but the Valar don't really come after defeating Morgoth. They don't come into the world anymore. So you know, as time goes on and the centuries pass. That friendship kind of dissolves, and and it's uh, you know it's a little bit like that. Uh, I reference this comic all the time, the XKCd comic. It's two characters. One brings the other one like a ball or something, and is like, "I made this," and the other one's like, "You made this?" Oh, okay. And then the first one leaves. And the second one is just standing there with the ball and two panels later, he's like, I made this. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of what happens to the Numenorean kings is they they get a little arrogant and they take their greatness for granted. And they maybe lose track of how much they gained, you know, how much of their power and privilege um, was given to them by the elves and the Valar. And so now here we are so many kings. And rulers later and that relationship has really disintegrated and they almost have this kind we see this kind of xenophobic attitude a little bit you know the fact that elendil's name in some etymologies means elf friend is enough to get him a side eye from his monarch so okay i was i was trying to squeeze as much Numenorian history so it's kind of interesting you know if you're reading this in the book <laughs> you get the whole spread of Numenorian history at once But this is dropping us at a very specific time where clearly it's still grand and magnificent. But you can see these little tinges of darkness and distrust uh, kind of creeping into the culture.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a that's a perfect summary of it. And it's it, it starts at such an interesting time. And we sort of, you know, the thing that introduces the audience to all of that is that sort of confrontation in the throne room between uh, Galadriel and Muriel, who is the queen regent, uh, played by Cynthia Adai Robinson. Um, she's not the queen. Uh, she's the queen regent. But this is, you know, the first time that an elf has set foot on the shores of Numenor in a very long time, clearly. And there's a huge amount of distrust. And, you know, Galadriel, as we know, is very proud. She was there in the first age. She definitely knew, you know, Elros and, and was was yeah. you know, hanging out with, uh, you know, all of those people who would then, you know, become Numenorians. And so she's very much like, you know, this was a gift from the Valar and like, you know, you should, you guys were elf friends and, you know, this, this is a big deal for me to be here. You should be welcoming me with open arms. And you can hear from Muriel where she's very much like, we kind of saved your butts. Like if it was the humans who who, who sided with you and kind of helped make this happen that, um, you know, we, we have no affection for the elves. So it's it's a very interesting kind of uh dichotomy and the other thing is that you know part of it is that sort of political tension between the elves and the numenorians but part of it is you know kind of the question of mortality and immortality. Yeah. You know the Valar gave this choice to Elrond and Elros as a as a gift, you know basically you get to pick and and like what a great thing. And you know some of the numenorians are starting to feel like well maybe that's a little bit of a curse like why do the elves get to live for and why are we mortal you know we have to die um that's sort of one of the great tensions throughout Tolkien's work we see it throughout the Silmarillion we see it in parts of the Lord of the Rings there's this obsession with death and legacy especially you know they call it Iluvatar's gift you know the the gift of mortality being able to die and go on to the next adventure something the elves can never have but you know if you're human that's kind of a raw deal you're kind of like well i don't know what happens when i die but i know that the elves get to live forever so that's kind of a a weird tension so so you see some of those tensions you know kind of in you know this this episode which is is so fascinating and i just i love the i love that we get to spend so much time in númenor i love that we get to explore you know the more like kind of regal aspects of it. We get to see the throne room. We get to see, you know, um, we we learn that Elendil is is from a different part of of Numenor, which tends to be a little bit more friendlier to elves and, you know, kind of has that history.
1: Because it is like the Western part, right? Exactly. This is what I was trying to get at. Tolkien, when cardinal directions come up, they're pretty important, or at least the West is because the West is associated with civilization, goodness, um, heaven, you know, Numenor is already the the westernmost inhabited part of this world. And so to be on the westernmost part of the westernmost island, you know, basically means you're the closest to God and the closest to goodness. And, you know, Valinor is not visible anymore. But there are some, you know, I remember there are parts of, of the Numenor story where rulers or, or nobles like Alendil who feel sympathetic uh, to the elves and the Valar still will go out there and just try to get any glimpse they can of Valinor. I always find that very cute. And yeah, I mean, like you, you did a great job of explaining how death comes up in Tolkien's work. And I think that's amazing. You know, it's, it's this whole debate where like the, the people who are arguing can't even see it from the other's perspective because humans, especially powerful humans, um, you know, we love these stone monuments of Numenor, as we were saying, but in some ways they are a struggle with mortality. Well, well, at least if I, if I build this giant statue or at least commission the building of it, then I will live on through that. And uh, when we talk about the Harfoots later, you know, in this episode, we see how their culture kind of processes death and memorials and stuff. But for elves like, you know, not so much this Elrond and Galadriel, but the Elrond and Galadriel of Lord of the Rings – are like, we're so jealous of you humans, you mortals, who, who, as you say, it's always called the gift of is death, because it gives meaning to your life, and it gives meaning to your choices, and it allows you to then pass on to, to heaven or, or whatever you think is next, whereas, you know, the immortals have to just stick around living through this fallen world and just seeing things you know as you say by the time we get to the lord of the rings it's a post-apocalyptic world you know they by living through the world and and being immortal mostly just means like bearing witness to decay and degeneration and stuff and but the most vain humans you know can't see that because they start to think about themselves and their power and and that's really where numenor starts going down the drain
0: yeah. And, and we get to meet a couple other, you know, kind of key characters in, in this episode. You know, we mentioned Alendil, who is, you know, uh, I'm, I immediately fell in love with. I was like, oh, I love everything about him. I was like, I love how, like, kind of stoic he is. He reminds me very much of Aragorn, which is yeah. a very, you know, obvious, you know, comparison. I loved getting to meet Queen Regent Muriel. Um, I think she has this beautiful, you know, sort of like stoicism about her that is incredibly regal and is a kind of a fun contrast to some of the other, like, monarchs get to meet um we get to meet her closest advisor Farazan, who has an interesting role to play when we won't get into to spoilers but
1: so far they seem to be on the same page
0: very much so and he he's he's a very he's got a sort of gravitas to him that is you know very he he clearly has the ear of the of the queen regent and holds a, a position of power
1: we love a grand vizier Dude, we'd love it. Always trustworthy.
0: Yeah. Always always doing some whispering, mm-hmm. you know, kind of behind the scenes.
1: Whoever's whispering in the king's ear, you're like, that's a good guy. That's Clearly. the person <laughs> that I can trust.
0: <laughs> um, and we get to meet Alendil's family. Uh, we meet his son, Asildur, and his uh, daughter, Arian. So this is an interesting, you know, kind of point of, you know, if you've read the books, Tolkien writes about that Alendil um, had two sons, Anarion and uh, Asildur. Um, and here we hear like a little bit of a mention of, you know, the other brother, um, mm-hmm. but he's not on screen. But we do get to meet Asildur, who is sort of a young sailor. He's sort of following in his father's footsteps, his, you know, and um there's a little bit of a tension between them uh that we we very quickly quickly learn. And uh also Isildur has a sister, which is a, a new invention for the show. Tolkien uh often wrote just about the great sons and, but he didn't necessarily write about, you know, Isildur's mother or if Isildur had sisters, which I think is a fun way to, it's, it's not, not canon. Um, So I think, and I think it's a, it's a great invention. You know, we meet Yarian and she's a little bit like her brother. She's a little headstrong, but she's also incredibly ambitious. She wants to be an architect. You can see there's an incredible amount of love in this family and a warmth. And like, I don't know, there's something I really liked those scenes where the three of them were just sort of, like, arguing over, like, a meal. And, and there's something very, you know, kind of down-to-earth about it that I, I really, really loved immediately, sort of, like, getting to meet these characters and, like, finding the the relationship between them. So what did you make of, you know, getting to see Asildur and and Aarian Because as we know, if, you, if you've read The Lord of the Rings, Asildur has a very, very big part to play. Or if you've
1: seen Lord of the Rings, like we were saying there's only a shot of Elendil, but you get a decent chunk of Isildur in the movies.
0: And every single time someone meets Aragorn, they're they're like, oh my God, it's Isildur's heir. Oh my God, Isildur. (laughs) Exactly,
1: Isildur's heir. His name comes up a lot, more than Elendil even. And um, we get this, uh, I love the cut that introduces him where Elendil kind of mentions his son or the queen mentions that he has a son. And then it cuts to Isildur on this boat, you know, trying to make his way. And I can't be the only one who, when he's staring off into the distance, you know, very Luke Skywalker like kind of daydreaming and someone yells, Isildur to, to wake him up. It sounds a bit like Elrond yelling at him in Mount Doom, uh, you know, a hundred years later, but maybe that's just his name. And you can only, you can, it's such a specific, you can only pronounce that name so many different ways. It's a good name. Um, but I, you know, I got an echo of, of the,
0: Isildur, throw it into the
1: fire. <laughs> but, but he's not that guy, you know, he doesn't even have a beard yet. He's very, he's a young buck and, you know, his ship scene, the ship, the action we get on the boat as someone almost gets pulled off and, and he helps uh, rope them back in. Um, I thought it was cool because if you're going to do Numenor, you know, it's not just that we we can't just see the seaside kingdom. We have to spend some time on these boats because that's what they live for and that's what their ancestors live for. And, you know, I got the... I don't know if this is said outright or, or if it was just the implication I got, but I was kind of understanding that Elendil is, is from this noble family, or at least like this noble lineage. And, you know, if he wanted to, maybe he could have gotten more involved in the bureaucracy or the hierarchy of Numenor. And he has purposefully chosen to kind of take this relatively lowly, you know, Coast Guard position, a, a Sea Guard because he loves the sea and he doesn't really care for the current politics of Numenor. Um, And so that's kind of where he's, you know, finding freedom, serving his country while also not getting uh, too involved in, in stuff he doesn't believe in because we even see he can speak Elvish and, and he learned it and respects elves. So I thought that was cool. I don't totally have a read on the the sister yet, although I think she's a welcome addition. Certainly the show is going out of its way to, add uh you know characters that aren't white men to this story, so I'm interested by her she clearly she seems to where her brother and father really rejoice in the sea and in sailing uh, she seems a little more landbound and really likes uh, her horses and rides them wherever they can so that's an interesting distinction and I wonder if the other brother if the implication is that you know he is more involved kind of in the royal guard or or something like that and that's why he's not really still. Hanging out with the family because he's chosen maybe to to hew closer to you know Numenorian society than they are. Kind of keeping themselves on the outskirts, uh, doing what they can.
0: Yeah, there's clearly some tension going on in in Elendil's family, and um, as is all the case with all families, you know, there's always going to be you know, Dad, I don't want to follow in your footsteps. Right, That's, basketball is your dream. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's very much like that.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: So, but, but one of the things I like is that, you know, a lot of the things that Tolkien wrote, specifically in the Appendices and, you know, in the Akalabeth, is, is he writes about, you know, sort of the great events, the kings, the queens, the the major things. And one of the things the show is taking such care to flesh out is sort of the more ordinary people. You know, we see that mm-hmm. with the Harfoots, We see that with the whole storyline with Bronwyn. And, and we see that here in Numenor where we get to meet, um, you know, Aearian and And we get to see some of the other people. Like, we get to see the rest of the city, you know, beyond... Muriel's throne room which I think is a really smart storytelling device because you know um, it's one thing to read about like sort of like the history of the the great you know events and great rulers and things like that. But if you're actually going to tell a story, it makes so much more sense to spend time with, you know, some of these characters who don't hold tremendous power and, and, you know, these family dynamics and things like that.
1: Right. That's the whole premise of Lord of the Rings itself, you know, for as much as we, you know, if Lord of the Rings was like the myths that it's based on, then not only would Aragorn be a heroic character that we all love, but he would be the main character, you know, but the, the twist of Lord of the Rings is centering it on, you know, specifically the hobbits, but also all these different um, everyday people who, in their own ways, uh, contribute to the defeat of evil. And so the show definitely seems to be carrying that on. That you know, if this is a Lord of the Rings story and it's a Middle Earth story, then it yeah, it can't just be about the monarchs and the great heroes because the whole idea is that is that everyone in Middle Earth you know will affect the the outcome in some way. Um, although I must say, when it comes to Eri and the sister, you know. <laughs> Numenor doesn't seem like uh, the most friendly place to walk around if you're a man. So, you know, it seems like we got some uh, fratty culture going on here. So, you know, I wonder what she kind of has to put up with walking the streets of Numenor.
0: Very much so. And so let's talk a little bit about that fratty culture and a little bit of that, like, hey, man, don't get in my face. Uh, Because we, you know, we get to see a lot of this episode through the eyes of Galadriel and Halbrand, and we learn a little bit more about our, um, you know, our little castaway friend about where who he is and where he comes from.
1: He can go beast mode, yeah.
0: He. So let's <laughs> talk about that. That was pretty brutal. Like yeah. I was not expecting that. That was like
1: something out of The Witcher, you know, in terms of how violent it is. It
0: kind of was, and I, you know, when I, I know the show owners have said, you know, their goal was not to make, you know, there wasn't going to be a level of sex and violence on the um, on the level of something like Game of thrones you know we don't see any crabs you know eating people's faces <laughs> off right. in, in, in this episode um but you know there's some some really interesting action and violence and some of that we'll get to a little bit later as as, as we check in with our good friend um the elf erendir uh but let's talk a little bit about Halbrand. we learned that you know he's from the southlands and not only is he from the southland but we learned that, uh, you know, he has a little bit of a history there. Supposedly, he is descended from, um, you know, the line of, of, of one of the great rulers who uh, sided with Morgoth in the Great Wars of the First Age. Uh, so he's sort of carrying this shameful history that, you know, there's a reason he doesn't share it with anyone. But, but that was an interesting reveal. And it's sort of a, you know, you and I were chatting before we started recording. Um, it's, it's very clearly drawing Aragorn parallels, but it's sort of like... What if Aragorn, instead of being descended from Sildur and some of the greatest kings of all time, was descended from a really bad dude who sided with evil? And so that's one of the things that the show is doing that I'm really interested in is because Tolkien always kind of wrote about, you know, how during the first age, Morgoth and, and, and Sauron had you know, men aligned themselves with Sauron and Morgoth. You know, it wasn't just an army of orcs. It was, you know, there were the, these people who pledged fealty to them. And so here we're actually getting to, you know, see the echoes of that. You know, that's why Arandir and the elves are keeping watch over the Southlands and, and being almost oppressive towards, you know, Bronwyn's community. And, and here we see, we, see, we see the legacy of that hundreds of years later. Um, and we, we see it here with Halbrand. What, what did you make of that, that reveal
1: Right. Yeah, no, I'm I'm interested by the conception of him as like an anti-Aragorn and certainly bringing him to Numenor, you know, the ancestral homeland of the real Aragorn is kind of playing up those juxtapositions and anti-parallels. And I think you mentioned the people in the Southlands who we've seen through the eyes of Erendir. And I think that there's a really interesting distinction between them and Hallbrand. You know, that's where I think we knew he was from the Southlands because those scenes with him on the raft and stuff were juxtaposed with those scenes in the Southlands. So, you know, that's clearly one of our areas of interest we haven't really seen things like Rohan or whatever like like lands where where humans are good but there's a very marked difference which is that you know those humans that Arandir interacts with in the southlands clearly poor clearly you know not from noble lineage or whatever and they they feel it's really unjust they're like why why do i have to answer to elf cops you know, every month or every week because, you know, someone who I don't even know or remember, you know, my great-granduncle or whatever joined with Morgoth and I have no relation to that. But because Hallbrand is descended from the kings or the leaders of the nobles or whatever, he really feels that and, and feels that, you know, if not deserving punishment, he at least deserves, you know, aspersions cast against him because he really feels That lineage and we see from him going beast mode breaking the guy's arm definitely maybe the most brutal thing we've seen so far it's
0: brutal oh my god i I gasped (laughs) yeah
1: me too i was like oh wow i did not expect that you know it doesn't get like bloody necessarily it's it's one of those like fights where people get hit and go down but don't it's not like gross but still the the arm break and the close-up on it was pretty intense and uh so you know whatever that means if he has this kind of ancestral strength in him this you know maybe orc like tendencies or something you know he really is a living embodiment of that legacy of those men who sided with Morgoth you know even if he even if that's not the choice he would have made he really feels that connection even if the other humans we've seen in the southlands are like well that has nothing to do with me but you know Because that is interesting, you know, not, you know, everybody has family and stuff, but, you know, with these kings and these people for whom lineage matters, it makes sense that that would play more into their mindset and stuff. You know, one of my favorite, and I just want to say, you know, if you read the Silmarillion, I, I think it actually is relatively ambivalent how many of these humans joined with Morgoth or took his side willingly in a war with the Valar. It's not like the Valar kind of presented themselves to these humans and that they were given a choice. You know, Morgoth was it and and a lot of humans, he was like the first thing they ever saw. And so, you know, I wonder if the show will explore that, that choice was kind of, maybe people did it because they thought that that was their best ticket to survive or whatever. And they, they weren't getting other offers on the table. Um, and I just want to mention one of my favorite things in the Silmarillion is it's talking about even though Morgoth allied with humans and took their fealty from some of them, he also despised them. And the reason that he hated them so much is because of all the Valar, humans are most like Melkor. They're most like Morgoth. I've always loved that description because a lot of the Valar, like any mythical pantheon, are diversified and specialized. And here's the god of the sea, and here's the god of the wind, and here's the goddess of you know, growing things. and The
0: goddess of grief, my personal favorite.
1: Yes, Nienna, our favorite. I tweet about her all the time. And uh, one of her disciples may or may not be making an impact on this story. But Melkor had no specialty. He, He had the potential to do anything. And that's kind of, I think, what Tolkien's referring to is that, you know, Humans can do whatever they want if they, they put their mind to it. And, you know, that means you could potentially choose evil the way that Melkor slash Morgoth did, but you don't have to. So I've always loved that. Uh, I love any references to the connection between Morgoth and humans. And I like that it's still, you know, that it's not just that we got a couple Silmarillion references up front and that's it. Like, it, we're really seeing how the things that happen in the Silmarillion, the things that happen with Morgoth are really woven into the fabric of the story, of the setting, and also these characters' lives. And they really, some of them, like Halbrand and Galadriel, really feel it.
0: Yeah, I think it's kind of an interesting parallel to, you know, the the actual Lord of the Rings, where everybody's always talking about the Second Age, and they're always talking about the First Age, and they're always, like, referencing things that happened, you know, centuries ago. So it makes sense that you're, you're seeing that here, too. There's always this sense of the past and, you know, there people are keenly aware of that. And obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, as the show continues, that'll change a little bit as, as, you know, this narrative sort of starts to unfold, but, you know, there is this sense of legacy and and the things that came before, you know, you're, you're not just getting dropped into this world. Um, there's this idea that, you know, things, things have been happening for many centuries and, and, you know, we're, we're starting to see the, um, things that people have perhaps forgotten should maybe not have been forgotten. Um, (laughs) so we talked a little bit about, um, you know, kind of that crazy action scene with Halbrand and that, the crunching of the bones. But let's talk about another crazy action scene. Let's go yeah. to the Southlands and let's uh, check in with uh, poor Erendir. Speak of the devil. Who has been uh, captured and is is basically held prisoner in a in a work camp.
1: Chain gang.
0: Basically, uh, run by orcs, um, along with several of his elf compatriots, um, basically forced to continue digging these tunnels. You know, something that, that I think the show does a great job of. You know, showing and not telling is that you know orcs don't love sunlight, uh, which is why we see these these incredible like weird contraptions of like bone and and shade like used to you know basically they're they're hiding in these sort of like tents in these in these tunnels, and we get you know sort of a a a makeshift elf rebellion as they they try to flee from their captors.
1: It's a prison break attempt
0: it is a prison break attempt, and it doesn't go very well, unfortunately. No. But what did you what did you make of that um, whole sequence?
1: You know, I like the you know because in Lord of the Rings, a major plot development in Lord of the Rings that happens early on is the creation of orcs who are not vulnerable to sun with the creation yeah. of the urukai and stuff. So this isn't really that weakness doesn't totally factor into LOTR except right at the very beginning because the orcs no longer have that weakness. And it's like, oh my God, they're so powerful now. But obviously in this prequel, they are constrained by that. And I think that the ways that they've come up with to circumvent it are really inventive. You know, the first two episodes, the orcs basically existed as ghosts, like spooky monsters in a haunted house story, um, you know, with that extended sequence in Bronwyn's house. And now we see how they were doing that, that they've basically created this little like ant farm of tunnels beneath the Southland that allows them to kind of get into pop up into houses if they want or uh, just travel without the light of the sun. And I really like the aesthetic of the big animal skulls that they wear. It's a cool way of making them creepy and weird and scary uh, while also distinguishing them from the aesthetic of the orcs in Lord of the Rings because the orcs we're used to are all outfitted in armor and they're shock troops and they're ready for war. And obviously these orcs are building towards something, but they're not quite there yet. And so uh, I like this kind of ragtag aesthetic to them. And, you know, because we've only met these characters, you know, we haven't gotten a lot of deaths or, or plot twisty kind of moments yet, things that tug at your heartstrings because we're still just meeting everybody. Like we said, we just met Numenor and all these characters this episode. But I did find myself sad and, and mourning almost for a character um, when they were ordered to cut down that tree and Arndir only did it after they killed one of his friends. Um, in this really weird kind of offering water. And at first I thought it was going to be like poisoned water or whatever, or like sludge water, like they give to Marion Pippin, but it's not, it's good water. And then he just cuts one of their throats. And as we were saying, you know, death in Tolkien's work is a gift for men. Um, elves can't die on their own, but they can be killed, which makes it weird. You know, death has many interpretations in Tolkien's work as it does in life. And even though death... Is, is often portrayed as a welcome respite from the world. It's also really sad when a being who might have lived thousands more years um, is kind of cut down and their story ended. And not just that, but killed for standing up for trees, you know, and uh, of course I feel that in our world, the importance of trees and the environment. And this is kind of the, in, you know, the horrors of industrialization are a subject of Lord of the Rings. And again, this is an embryonic stage and so, you know, this tree isn't a character. We only saw it for like five minutes. It's not an end or anything. Um, but I was, I was sad at that whole uh, sequence. I loved that the elf stood up trying to protect it. And I really felt kind of sick when Arendir had to cut it down, not least knowing that, you know, this is only the first tree that's going to get cut down and it's going to lead to so many more as the orcs continue to build their power. Um, so I really liked that moment.
0: I did too. And I think that's something that, you know, if there is one thing that, if you want to be true to Tolkien and if you want to honor Tolkien's right. memory, there is literally. No way you could be more Tolkien than like having an extended And be pro tree. Be like owed to the trees. Like, oh yeah. my God, protect the trees. Yeah. This man loved trees so yeah. much. Like, literally, that is one of my favorite things about him. There are all these stories about his friends refuse to go on walks with him because he would just stop and just like spend time with every single tree. The man loved trees. And that's one yeah. of my favorite things about him. I mean, he literally, we have sentient trees in the forms of the Ents. We have like, you know, right. literally the party tree in in, you know, um yeah. the beginning of fellowship. I mean, dude loves trees.
1: He does. And he was right to. I'll, I'll say it.
0: Exactly. I lo- But I, I just love the idea that, you know, like in, in Tolkien's world, the best people are all pro-tree and mm-hmm. all the evil people are anti-tree.
1: Yeah, that's how you f- know if somebody's evil is if they're cutting
0: down trees. Right. It's like, oh, you don't like trees? You're obviously the worst person in the world, clearly. Yeah. And and we do see, um, you know, the, the great white tree of, of Numenor, which, yes. you know, will play role later on we see you know the gift of of a tree um that Elrond gives to Durin that grows underground i mean that that is like number 1 i, I mean it's basically like you should rename the series like lord of the trees like trees
1: <laughs> number 1 theme
0: throughout this entire thing
1: and you know something's going bad if a tree's getting sick you know and Gilgalad finds that diseased leaf in the early episodes and that's like yeah. oh something or you know the obviously the decay of the white tree in Lord of the Rings and, and even now is a, uh, is a sign of Numenor's decline and, and stuff. So yeah, if bad things are happening to trees, you know, you've got to keep your guard up.
0: <laughs> exactly. I, I really enjoyed this, this whole sequence. I thought, um, I love the way the orcs look. I thought the prosthetics looked fantastic. I love yeah. some of the costume design choices. Like, the orcs, they wear these incredible hoods that are, like, almost, like, made out of snakeskin that are, like, really, really beautiful and and kind of horrifying and creepy. Um, I found myself, like, really, like, charmed by Ismael Cruz Cordova, who plays Erendir. I think he's, like, got a, like, kind of a weird, quiet stoicism to him. But, like, also, like, he's kind of fun to, like, watch him do, like, crazy stuff and crazy stunts. And then they're never, yeah. like out of the realm of possibility, but there is this sort of like beautiful acrobatic quality that I think is like a fun contrast to somebody like Halbrand, who's all just like brute force and, you know, like um, very, very human, kind of very brutal as opposed to Aaron who's all, you know, very acrobatic and very fluid. And, you know um, I know Ismail, the actor has talked about like, studying different forms of martial arts and like, mm-hmm. you know, doing all kinds of like things. And, and there's sort of like a, a, a grace and a fluidity. And I, you know, some people are like, Oh, whatever. It's cheesy. And I'm like, I don't know, man, like Peter Jackson had Legolas surfing down the trunk of an olifant and yeah. like shield surfing. So I like, you know, I, I love that stuff. Like, yeah. I think the fighting
1: looks good for what it is. We just haven't really had a climactic fight yet because we haven't, met you know we we're still you know the show is still setting everything up and rolling things out slowly so we get kind of these outbursts of action against characters who don't mean much but it's still fun to see and 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 is one of those things that i think will pay off uh even more once we start seeing you know named characters fighting each other or you know conflict kind of escalating um they're really laying the groundwork for some of that
0: absolutely all right, well, we are going to take a quick break, but when we come back, you can hear my interview with Lloyd Owen, who plays Lindel, and Megan Richards, who plays Poppy Proudfellow. Welcome back to All Rings Considered. Please enjoy my interviews with Lloyd Owen and Megan Richards. Thank you so much, Lloyd, for, for joining me to talk a little bit about Episode 3 and, and you know, the debut of Numenor. I mean, I, I'd love to start, you know, this is a show, you've been working on this for literally years and haven't been able to talk about it. What's it been like these past few weeks now that the show is actually, you know, out and you get to show it to people?
2: It really has been wonderful, actually, to, you know, let go of some of that... Um... Not necessarily holding on to secrets, but just trying to, you know, trying to protect a storyline before it comes out. So it's been, yeah, it's been joyful to to let people see what's going on, particularly family and friends who've had the most questions, of course, because they're they're closest to you on a day on a day-to-day on a daily basis. So um, yeah, and it's just been really nice for people to see the scope and scale, and for everyone to be back in the Tolkien universe. It's been uh, it's been lovely to witness.
0: Yeah. And I, I love that, you know, with this episode, we finally, we get to see Numenor and we get to meet Elendil, who is, you know, one of those characters who's mentioned constantly throughout Tolkien's work, but but we've never seen him, you know, depicted on screen with any, you know, like depth. For you, how did you want to, you know, breathe life into this, this character and approach him, you know, not as a, a legend, but as a flesh and blood man?
2: And that's a great privilege of this job, actually, is that You know, he is this iconic character. He's a hero archetype. He's very close to a lot of fans' hearts because of, well, a couple of things, because he's like, you know, those who know their Numenor history will know he's like Noah in terms of saving the people from that island. And and from the Lord of the Rings, that sort of very self-sacrificial death at the end with the last alliance of elves and men. And so, but Tolkien wrote very little about him. There's very few little, there's just a few signposts along the way to his... His death. And so it's a great opportunity to open him up as a, as a fully three dimensional human being. And I think um, JD and Patrick, our showrunners, have done a great job so far, you know, setting this man up um, the way they have. They've imagined and added that he's recently widowed, that he's trying to bring up some grieving adult children who are also struggling. And that he's recently moved into the capital city of Numenor, right at the point where civil society might be breaking down, potentially. So, you know, the personal and the political are perfectly combined in him. So that's the great, that's the great excitement of it, as well as the responsibility, obviously, of, of hopefully fulfilling people's expectation and imagination of where they've put Elendil in their minds and hearts.
0: Yeah, and I love the the relationship we get to see with with his children, with Isildur and Iarion. I mean, tell me a little bit about working with with Maxim and, and Emma to figure out that that family dynamic.
2: Yeah, well, when we got we were locked down together in um, in New Zealand while we were filming, so there was very quickly, you know, the cast and crew become your sort of urban family. Um, because there wasn't anyone else around. And particularly with us three, we sort of created a little home away from home together. And oftentimes Sunday lunches, while well, we'd go through scripts together and chat. And in fact, with all of the cast from Numenor, because we were new arrivals, everybody else had been there about a year when we arrived. So we uh, had a little WhatsApp group called Numenor Nights. And we used to uh, yeah, meet up for dinners at, at, my, at my place um, quite regularly. So it was a good little... Uh, It was a good way to get to know each other and to sort of mutually discover the world of Numenor between the different bits of research that we'd all individually done. And what we found was written on the page from when the scripts came in. We, we definitely deep dive. But there's so much, so much material out there. You know indeed, I'm still reading, and so it's really good when you can curate a bit of opinion from other people. So, you know, that be that other members of the cast, other members of those that Newmanorian family, or wardrobe who had done all their work, production design, obviously directors and writers. So yeah, that's a good time, to, good research time. It's lovely.
0: Yeah, that's so nice. And and how are your sailing skills? You know, did you get to become an expert for the show?
2: <laughs> I mean, I've been, I've done a bit of sailing as you know, as as a guy, as a friend of a friend who says, "Do you want to come out on my boat?" In the past, and so I've done a bit of that. But yeah, it was great to have the opportunity to really get some lessons under our under our belts there, Maxim and I. And uh, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of teasing on those boats between us as to who was gonna be more seasick, more readily and more quickly, and who could learn how to tie a knot faster than the other. So yeah, it was good it was good fun.
0: I love that. And I love, you know, in this this episode that we see, um, I love the scenes between Elendil and Galadriel. He's sort of an outlier among the capital city of Numenor where he speaks Elvish and he has this, you know, affection for the elves. What interested you about kind of that relationship and, and you know, his, his history with the elves?
2: It's fascinating when you put Elendil and Galadriel together because for him growing up amongst the faithful and indeed, I think, from what J.D. and Patrick have created about how how deeply immersed in that loyal world his wife was, you know, that the history of Galadriel is actually you, you, you would be taught it at school, as it were, as a young Numenorian. I mean, she's, she's like a rock star, historical, global hero to meet. So that's one element that Elende was playing with. But at the same time, he you know, he swiftly meets her and realizes, and there's a brilliant line from Patrick about how he sees his children in her eyes, two different aspects of his kids in her. And despite this whole mortality, immortality debate, despite the fact she's thousands of year, years old, he can still see that that there's a there's an immaturity in that in her, or there's even um like a willful disregard of how to work with people. And I think that's the difference between elves and human. And I also think that because of being mortal, it forces you to, to consider more deeply how to relate to folk, w- which way, how to approach the world that you live in with this ticking clock. And because she doesn't have that, that gives her a different, a different outlook and a different way of being. So that was fascinating to try and put all of that into, into their initial meeting together
0: yeah and it's such a it's kind of interesting to see like they they end up almost you know very antagonistic or they begin very antagonistic and by the end they you know she sort of recognizes something in him that that there's sort of like a, a respect there that's really interesting
2: I think that's right absolutely correct and 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 indeed from my perspective as a Lendil, what I felt was a gradual drawing towards her inexorably he can't deny it but as much as he would like to be pragmatic and keep his family safe in the new Numenor, he's drawn towards her. That, that elvish connection between them speaks. And I think even the, speak, the speaking of elvish absolutely uh, cements that quite quickly. I think it's an emotional language. It's potentially his mother tongue and the fact that they can converse that way and deeply understand each other. And I think that's very Tolkienian in the sense that and it's all over the Lord of the Rings books. You suddenly hear characters begin to understand that that they have a fate and whether they might want to go off in a different direction fate is pulling them in, a, in the opposite direction i think he's not necessarily consciously feeling that with her yet but he's definitely instinctively feeling that with her he's drawn to her
0: yeah i mean tell me a little bit about you know learning elvish i know you guys had experts who basically kind of like tutored you How, what was that experience like
2: yeah it was great actually i'd uh a couple of years ago, Ago, I did a Bollywood film called *The Thugs of Hindustan* with Ahmed Khan, and I and I had thirty-six scenes to do, which were all in Urdu because of the director wanted them. Wanted my English character to uh, to be so good at speaking the language that he would be even more fearful as a member of the British East India Company as a baddie, basically. So mm-hmm. I'd had this experience of being given words essentially and sounds and trying to make. Sense of them, so being given the Elvish was another moment where I recognised this was a similar journey, and it's a very, um, it's a joyful journey because you, you have to unpick language in a way that you try and relate to your own language and and work out where the vowel sounds are, what the conjunctions are, which words are important, what the rhythm to that is, and obviously Tolkien, being a philologist, I mean, they're very, it's very beautiful to say Elvish. It's it's quite joyful to get your tongue round. Um, so yeah, trying to to invest it with um, the same amount of feeling that I would relate to with an English sentence um, was, was the challenge and actually some of the, the reward of that was great.
0: Yeah. I imagine it's such a beautiful language that I imagine, like you said, it's, it's kind of fun to to speak that way.
2: Yeah, it really was. Yeah. And, and every time, you know, every time the script comes in and there's a bit of Elvish, my little heart jumps, you know, my little soul sings because I'm like, okay, great, good. I can get some more of that. And, and indeed there's a, this word, Namarie, which I also love, I get to say later on. So so there's a lot that's really, really good. And of course, I saw that in the films and I read some of the books. And so just, you know, get the chance as the actor to be the person that says it in the character of Elendil is pretty special.
0: Yeah. And I love some of those scenes we see in episode three of Elendil and Galadriel riding on horseback um, to the to the archives. I mean, what do you remember about filming some of that?
2: That was my um, that was my second shooting day. My first shooting day was in a helicopter up in a, an extraordinary mountain range and a scene in episode seven, which was a, a bit of a shock because I was expecting to do them in order. But, you know, I don't know why I thought that as an actor because you, you never shoot in order. But so the second, that was my second scene. But that was the first time that we were establishing the physical geography of Numenor. Of course, you know, in episode three, we see this incredible set the production design had built for the capital city. Um, You know, this mixture of ancient Rome, Greece, Marrakesh, Byzantium, you know, whatever, Santorini, all all of these things, an extraordinary place. So, But riding the horses on the beach, you suddenly realize, oh, wow, we've we've just put on film the physical geography of Numenor. This is what it it looks like this. (laughs) I'm part of the island, um, so that was joyful. We, I'd had, had three and a half months of horse riding lessons, three days a week, so got to really know my horse Trinko. and yeah, just to be let loose on that beach was, yeah, that was yeah, it was a very very special day. That one again, you can't quite believe your luck when you're there riding a horse on the beach in New Zealand chasing galadriel who you'll never catch up with but anyway yeah
0: yeah it's kind of um it, it just seems like such an insane job you know it's like okay one day i'm studying elvish the next day i'm studying horseback riding you know like it, it seems like never the same day twice
2: yeah that's you know that alone the stunt training lessons and all of that stuff we to so, yeah, and the sailing as we talked about so yeah there's there's a there's a <laughs> there's a lot to learn which is great for the neuroplasticity because my brain is still still developing which is good news which is very good news
0: Never a dull day. Absolutely. All right, great. Well, I will let you go. But thank you again so much for talking to me. I am so excited to see where the rest of the season goes. And congratulations on on absolutely everything.
2: Thanks, Devon. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes, too. I've only seen up to episode three. So each week's a new week for all of us as we as we tune in and go, oh, that survives. Oh, they cut that. Oh, what does that mean? Well, that's interesting. That's in that position, that scene. Never used to be there or whatever. So And and also catching up with your, your mates and your pals and seeing what they've done. When you were when you were doing your horse riding lessons, other people were on set shooting, so it's really nice to discover all of the other stories and um, see them put together.
0: Yeah, I mean, you Numenorians were literally, I mean, an island away from everyone else, so it's probably nice to be like, oh, here's what the dwarves were up to. Here's here's what's <laughs> happening with the Harfoots.
2: I mean, it truly is. It truly is because you see it on the page when it when it's written, but it's a very very different thing on the page in, in the two dimensions there, and then having seeing it grown fleshed out when all of that talent all the way through every department is put together to create these worlds very special yeah and as you and as as we can all see i mean it's so rich isn't it visually it's so rich it's extraordinary it's
0: so gorgeous well thank you again for taking the time and um hopefully i'll get to talk to you again soon
2: i look forward to it devon here's to the next here's to the next
0: Thank you so much for joining me, Megan. I'm so excited to get to talk to you about these first few episodes. I mean, how are you feeling now that like the show is actually out in the world and you get to share it with people? <laughs>
3: it feels amazing. <laughs> it feels very relieving too, I think, because obviously it's been with us for so long. It is just nice to for people to actually people in my life especially to actually be able to see what i've been doing for three years um so they can actually relate especially when it comes to talking about other cast members or other people other members of crew i can be like oh that's them yeah no it's cool exactly i get to be like okay here's what i was doing in new
0: zealand for, yeah. for
3: this long period of time. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. I mean, and take me back to when you first got involved in the show, you know, and JD and Patrick kind of sat you down and were explaining kind of who Poppy is and who the Harfoots are. What Mm -hmm. excited you most about kind of her
3: and and this community that she's a part of? Oh, so much. I remember, I think it was like day two that I, that I was in New Zealand and I had a meeting with JD and Patrick and they were talking to me about Poppy and her history and the history of the Harfoots, et cetera. Um, And I just remember hearing that it was such an incredible concept. The thing that stuck with me the most was the camouflaging um, and how like what their survival skills are. And I remember thinking, I'm really intrigued to see how that's gonna be put into practice. But th- there was something that really drew me in about it. And you, you know, Poppy just sounded like so much fun as well, as she is. Um, and she definitely is to play. So it was it was really exciting from the get-go. But yeah, it was definitely one of those, you know, like you. It's difficult to describe the Harfots. It's much easier to have a visual and be like, there they are. And you immediately understand who they are. Um, so it was, it was kind of one of those where it was like, okay, I, I understand where you're coming from. and I understand. But it wasn't until I actually, when, when all the pieces came together at the end that I was like, ah, amazing.
0: Yeah. You get to see that, you know, the, it, it's one thing to be like, okay, this is an individual harfoot, But when you see them all together and part of this community, you're like, okay, I, I totally understand
3: this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's so different because they are very different when they are individual to when they are in the community. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. And, you know, in episode three, we get to learn a little bit about, you know, Poppy's history and, and kind of how her her family fell behind. How did that detail kind of affect your understanding of her?
3: I mean, yeah, it created a whole huger level of depth, <laughs> I suppose, um, and they told me that in the meeting as well. Um, and they told me which episode it was going to come in and all that stuff. So I, it was actually very helpful preparation wise. Um, but I mean, it made me understand that she's not just saying to Nori, you know, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. You know, she follows rules for a very specific reason. And that's because she doesn't want anyone to be left behind ever again. Um you know, she's already lost so much and she's seen so much and been through so much that she doesn't want that for anyone else either. And there's a whole level of worry for losing, you know, one of the most important half-its in her life, you know, her best friend. Um, And she doesn't want that to happen again. <laughs> but she also doesn't want that to happen to Nori. So... Yeah, that's definitely why I've been saying in lots of interviews that, you know, the reason that she... so whatever The thing that moves her throughout this series to stay by Nori's side is because of the loyalty and love that she has for her friend. And that ultimately comes from the loss that she's received and experienced before. And it's, you know, it's also only when people have watched it now as well. And they also understand it too, that has given me an even broader level of understanding and a deeper level of understanding of how that does affect her life and the way that she lives it. I remember when we watched it as a cast, we watched episodes one, two, and three, and um, I was sitting behind Owain, and um, and he was like, oh, and now she's just pulling the cart by herself. And oh God, I just, oh my goodness. He was just like, so and I was like, yeah, I suppose that, I forget that people haven't seen that that she is pulling it by herself, especially after all of those families are pushing them together. So it's um, it's yeah, definitely gave me a very deep level of understanding of Poppy.
0: Yeah, and I love what you said about the friendship between you know Poppy and Nori, and I, I love those scenes with you and Markella. Tell me a little bit about kind of how you two kind of wanted to figure out that dynamic and and approach that that friendship on screen.
3: um we did a lot of you know hanging out and getting to know each other which was very easy it was very nice to sort of go and have dinner and call it work um (laughs) (laughs) so it was yeah it was that was great and and then i think it kind of we had a lot of workshops with um jd patrick and ja before we even approached scripts it was all about their backstory and where they just how they sort of are with each other um and after we sort of figured out how they are with each other, we then kind of delved deeper into how they met and sort of what their circumstances are, the fact that they always make sure that their carts are next to each other, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, we just kind of kept building, and we're still building it now, um, which is really cool. It's really nice to be able to sit with a character for two years and really feel them, um, but also sort of understand new things about them yeah
0: I mean, one of the things I would love to talk to you about is one of the things I love most about the Harfoots is the detail and some of the production design and the costume design is, is so much fun. Yeah. Tell me about the first time you walked onto some of those sets and, and saw all the caravans and the details in the, in the Harfoots world.
3: Yeah, the first time I, I walked onto set was um, I wasn't actually filming I was just I was there for a set visit, but all of our background artists were in the middle of doing a sort of a run of like a movement sequence they had been working on with Lara, our movement director. And I think it was a camera test. J.A. was there and some of the crew, um, but they were all in their like costume and hair and makeup. And they were, they were doing the half reveal that you see in episode one, which obviously is half doing what they do best it's sort of coming out of hiding and, you know, just living their lives and having fun and, I remember walking on and actually the privilege of being able to walk onto a genuinely alive set and really feeling that immersion. I mean, it's, you know, something I've never experienced before. And as you say, yeah, the level of detail is incredible. All of the carts are, um, so obviously every family has a different, has their own cart, but every cart is weaved differently. Um, So that's just one level of detail um, in itself. Um, And then obviously there are things that are to scale, and then obviously, we have the strangest, and there's things that scale for the stranger that's, you know, so it's just, it's just like constantly ongoing. And I actually found out after we'd filmed, like it was like, you know, a year later, that half encampment that you see in those first three episodes, you know, it, it's so that's just somebody's farm, it's a location. And I thought that it was a genuine forest inside someone's farm, which I think it is. But the actual space that we were filming in was it actually a clearing. So all of those trees, they just like plopped in, which I was so surprised to hear because I genuinely didn't even know, and like all of the rocks um, as well. And you know, it's just it's just incredible. And I remember also walking into the crater set because that was on a soundstage, but they built it so everything that you see that's there, including the fire, was there on the day, which was just incredible. And the amount, like the amount of teams that we had, was just. It was just never ending. I just like, just constantly meeting people all the time. And it was just, yeah, it was just beautiful. And it really did allow us to immerse fully in those sets and in those worlds.
0: Yeah. It's like literally stepping into middle
3: earth. Yeah. Yeah. Literally.
0: That's amazing. And I, I also, I love the costume design. I love, you know, Poppy's hair. I love the twigs and leaves like to, to her <laughs> look like, tell me a little bit about, you know, figuring out her look.
3: I mean, I think I just walked into a room and everyone else did things around me. Um, (laughs) I I mean, that's literally all that I did. I just kind of stood there. Um, Those, the head pieces were from the costume department. I did my costume fitting first, maybe, before hair and makeup. It must have been. And um, they, in order to just get my hair out of the way, they just plaited it. And then they just sort of like put the occasional thing in my hair and you know that's just kind of what they did for everyone um generally. Um and then there was also so Poppy has a spoon on her belt. And I remember that wasn't there originally and Kate Hawley just sort of went, we going to need we need something, we need something that's not nothing that's too shiny because she she wouldn't have anything shiny, but something just something. And um, then they were sort of like putting things in my hair, which then obviously ended up being in them all of the coins and her um, dags. And then she was just like, and then one of these, I think someone who, someone who was in the room was just like, we've got this spoon here. Should we just try? She was like, yeah, try it on, try it on, try it on. And then sort of tried it and, and she was like, I think that's it. That's great. So it all kind of came from some of them just kind of random thoughts. So we need something and just things being available at hand. And then going from there, obviously hair and makeup, like their communication was incredible. And obviously, they worked very um, sort of fluidly together, those two departments. And, you know, they looked at the fact that they just put my hair in plaits and they were like, I actually really like this idea of Poppy. Let's. And then that's how they created the two sort of bits coming down. So, yeah, it really was just sort of grabbing things that were there, which I think is so brilliant and so amazing about the job that we do and the work that we do, because you do that every day. Yeah, sometimes it's just serendipitous. Yeah, exactly.
0: For sure. And, you know, you mentioned the crater scenes and some of those amazing scenes with, with Daniel Wayman as, as the stranger. Mm-hmm. How do you film those scenes, you know, where, where you talked about scale, where you and Markella are, are supposed to be half his size?
3: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, we did something called Scale Academy, which I still don't really understand what they're talking about the whole time. They're basically giving us a whole PowerPoint presentation about technology, which I didn't understand from the get-go. But basically, they were just telling us that technology had advanced, has advanced so far and so much that we were able to do some scenes where we were facing opposite each other. But they would do some, they would do like a take that was just for Markella, then they would do a take that was just for Daniel, and then sort of merge them together. And I remember actually seeing them being edited at the same time that they were being filmed, and I was so flabbergasted because i didn't understand how they were doing it um so that was that was one way of doing it which was pretty incredible and then we had um wonderful scale doubles who we created really close relationships with um so and uh, you know some scenes we that like we would do movement sessions together um and then sort of we would work together on the day in order to sort of get some angles right um, yeah, so it was, there was a lot of it. Just depended on what the the scene was, um, and then we also had scale sets too. So the boulder that the stranger is lying on in the crater, we had two sizes. So that one was for scale for Markella, and one was for scale. It was for Daniel. So depending on the shot that you see, depends on the crater that the boulder that is used. It's, it's honestly, it's amazing. Um, but yeah, it was. We really had to sort of deepen our connection. In order for sort of the scale element to not feel like it was getting in the way, and not that it did at all, it definitely didn't, um, but it's an extra element instead of sort of just plainly going, and this is a scene, go and talk to each other." So yeah, I feel very connected to you know those two specifically, and, and obviously all of the it. Yeah. And um,
0: I wanted to add, I also love Lenny Henry as as Sadoc Burroughs. Um, yeah, and I love great. that scene where, yeah, I love that scene where, where Poppy helps Nori, you know, steal the book. What do you remember <laughs> most about filming that sequence with him?
3: <laughs> I remember feeling incredibly stressed. <laughs> that was my sort of one heavy stress day. And I'm very glad that it turned out okay um, on the screen. I think because there were that was sort of the first scene that the showrunners had written that was sort of comedic. Like you knew that it was a comedic scene. So I think immediately that was something that sort of I went, okay, I have to get this right. I have to pitch this right. And secondly, I'm doing a comedic scene with Lenny Henry, who, you know... That's sort of his life's work. So I was sort of like, okay, (laughs) bit stressed. Um, But no, it was was fine and it was great in the end. And, uh, you know, Wayne was incredible in sort of guiding me through that. And, you know, we really, we sort of worked it out. And obviously Lenny was great to work with. And we just had fun on the day in the end. I think it's sort of, you know, some days you just have a build up of things. And then when you actually do it, it's fine and it's fun as well. And we definitely found ways to have fun on all of our sets that makes a difference absolutely
0: yeah all right great well thank you so much for joining me this has been so much fun and i cannot wait to see um where the rest of the season goes
3: thank you so much so thank you again
0: for (laughs) taking the time and and are you you. in london are you getting ready for for season two wow
3: well who knows (laughs) it's all in the air (laughs) tbd right well good luck with everything and thank you again thank you so
0: much Welcome back. And our thanks to Lloyd Owen and Megan Richards for joining us and breaking down the episode. Christian, we talked a lot about Numenor at the top of the show, but I want to talk a little bit about another part of Middle Earth, which Megan talked about. We are going to check in uh, with the Harfoots, who also have a lot of interesting new developments uh, this episode. Our good friend, the stranger, um, and his—you know—our our fly, our fly obsessed uh, buddy. His secret is sort of exposed. He—he he comes face to face with the rest of the Harfoots, and it's kind of a an emotional kind of moment. I really kind of love some of these scenes, you know, where where Nori is—you know—meeting with her family and like talking about her duty to like the Harfoot community, and and I, I just—I the more time we spend with the Harfoots, the more I kind of fall in love with them.
1: Yeah. Definitely.
0: I'm just like, I I love everything about this. I love, you know, kind of their nomadic community. I love they're deeply funny, but they're not like kind of like slapstick funny. Like there's just a warmth there. And I'm like, I want to spend so much time here. What about you, Christian? What did you make of the Harfoot scenes here?
1: Yeah, it's funny you say that. I was thinking exactly the same, that the more time we spend with them, uh, the more I like them. I love Lenny Henry's performance as kind of the lead lead Harfoot and kind of their, their mystic and their sage. I love how natural and secondhand disguise is for them. To the, mo- the moment that anything happens, they can basically just like drop to the ground in their camouflage, uh, as we see here. I love that stuff, um, and I think also, you know, we were talking about Numenor, which which has these legacies in Lord of the Rings, like Aragorn. We've talked about Elrond, Galadriel, Galadriel the Elven kingdoms that have these legacies um, in Lord of the Rings. I think so far the Harfoots for me are the most successful um, that the show has been at showing you something that is different from how you remember it in Lord of the Rings. But also you can totally see how it will become what we are familiar with. Like, you know, the Hobbits, the most important thing to Hobbits or most, no, most non-Baggins Hobbits is home and hearth and, and staying where they are. These Harfoots have a completely different worldview and perspective. They're traveling all the time. They value um, like I was saying, stealth and uh, speed and efficiency and the ability to make home wherever they find it. And yet through the warmth of all these characters, the the history they have with each other, the way that they talk and their own individual culture, you know, strongly reminds me of the Hobbits that we know and love. So I think that the show has been really successful at that. I think they're my favorite visual as much as I was talking about how much I love Numenor still kind of getting used to that but I love the aesthetic of the Harfoots like I said I love all these disguises I love these camps that they throw up that said I was I guess maybe I'll have to rewatch it I just was a little surprised at how surprised they were by the stranger like it's one thing when like Nori's like carting him around in a in a cart like kind of a mile or two away from camp but when he's like right there it's like (laughs) hey did anyone notice that there's like a big guy right over there it's not until he like stands up and bumps his head on something that they all notice um so i thought that that was kind of funny um especially because you know the actor playing the stranger he's he's one of those guys who's clearly tall even when he's sitting down or whatever like that's not our foot (laughs) so i thought that that was kind of funny
0: that was a little bit funny, but um, yeah, I I I love some of those interactions, and and I too, I've just like I've totally fallen in love with the Harvits. I love, um, I think Markella Cavanaugh gives incredible performances. Nori, she just has this like kind of like wide eyed, yearning look in her eyes that mm-hmm. is just. I don't know, like casting has just been I'm, I'm just so impressed by it. I'm like, do you think they just like saw a bunch of actresses and they were like, we're looking for one who has like that Elijah Wood, like right. giant eyes and can right. just like yearn wistfully and talk about adventure. And I'm like, oh, perfect. She completely nails it.
1: Yeah, I'm so intrigued by that casting process. You know, I just covered the Sandman show on Netflix, which Lenny Henry actually has a small role in and is very yeah. uh, relevant because he plays a character who's kind of an homage to, to Tolkien and C.S. Lewis stories so i thought that was very fitting but i remember talking to them about the casting process and and that you know and, and like lord of the rings that's a show that was very diverse and and cast a wide net in its casting um but they were at least casting you know characters who exist who are recognizable and that was tough enough like you're casting for nori or you're casting for Hallbrand, or or something like you know, you want maybe analogs to Lord of the Rings characters, but you're also creating this. You oh, I'm just so, you know, did they uh, totally know what they had in mind for these characters as they were casting? Or did they kind of find it together with the actors and something stood out to them? I don't know. But uh, yeah, clearly um, there's some magic going on and, and the actors are, are living up to it, especially for the Harfoots. It seems like there's a lot of chemistry among these actors that I'm really feeling.
0: Yeah, I I adore Megan Richards who mm-hmm. um who plays Poppy. I I've I've really, you know, everyone in Numenor I've fallen in love with. I I think one thing that I I've, I've been really fascinated by is some of the casting is you know, these are these are separate from the Peter Jackson movies, but but yeah. there's enough similarity there where you're like, okay, Robert Arameo looks enough like he could age into Hugo Weaving or mm-hmm. like, you know, Morwith Clark looks so much like Cate Blanchett in in parts. Like, she has sort of, like, that same, like, steely look in her eyes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even the characters, like, you know, Benjamin Walker looks vaguely like the actor who played Gil Gallad for, like, two seconds in the prologue (laughs) to The Little Rings. Like, there's clearly, like, a a similarity there in a lot of these. Um, You know, and we're talking about casting, and, you know, one of the things... Since the show has come out, one of one of the biggest conversations around it is um, diversity in Middle Earth. You know, there has been a tremendous amount of racist hate, kind of thrown towards the cast, thrown towards the show. You know, it got to the point where, um, you know, the the Hobbit actors of the the Peter Jackson trilogy, uh, Elijah Wood, Sean Astin, Dominic Monaghan, and Billy Boyd, all like spoke out basically in support of seeing you know diversity in Middle Earth, which is something that you know these casts haven't really in inter- interacted before, but you know, this is the first time like they were Tagging each other on Twitter and, and like amplifying support. And the actual cast of The Rings of Power just released a statement this week, basically, you know, standing together in support of specifically their co-stars of color and, and basically just sort of advocating for, you know, these, these, these to have these roles in a show like this. And we've seen these kind of conversations before. You know, you mentioned the Sandman, there's been similar conversations there. Um, we've seen it with House of the Dragon, and and there's it's it's been I don't know. It, it bums me out so much that that is the the conversation around the show is because I I've just been so delighted by all of the actors in everything, and I I, I love how this show's vision of Middle Earth, and I, I've been so you know I've really fallen in love with it, and and so it 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 totally breaks my heart to see you know people attacking it in that way, and. Um, you know i i i've been really impressed by the way you know the show has has you know very been very quick and very clear to support its actors and you know basically call it out and say it's not okay,
1: yeah, I mean it's always weird when when something that you thought was kind of a flaw or a criticism of a pre existing thing is apparently something that people treasured or or liked, you know, like I remember during the run of Game of Thrones, the biggest criticism that I would see over and over is that there weren't enough, you know, non-white actors and characters and stuff involved. And so that's something that, uh, and the same with Lord of the Rings, you know, the discourse was certainly in a different place in the early 2000s. And, and you and I weren't really of, of discourse age yet when those movies <laughs> were coming out. But it's something you hear from fans and stuff that, or, or just people you talk to, um, that, you know, it is pretty white and Anglo-Saxon and, you know, some Imbish creative thinkers have said that, you know, you can almost interpret uh, elves as kind of eugenicists or something, um, you know, if they're all white and and the people that really annoy them are, you know, multivalent humans or orcs, you know, in the original series, kind of the only actors of color were playing lurts or, or playing the orcs or whatever, um, which you kind of understand, but is also, you know, just a little unfortunate to have that combination, especially in a setting where the orcs... Aren't really portrayed sympathetically. Uh, I'll be interested to see. Doesn't look like we're, doesn't look like we've gotten any sympathetic orcs so far um, in this show. But I'll be interested if there'll be any point of view characters or anything. Um, but that's all to say that, like, yeah, this is stuff that, as someone who loves Lord of the Rings and A Song of Ice and Fire and stuff, this is something that you have to wrestle with. That uh, these are criticisms I've heard before, and now these creators and these studios have taken it to heart and have cast. Um, actors of color as as elves and dwarves and noble houses of Westeros. And yet it was this weird thing where it kind of felt like all the people who had been calling for that stuff over the years or, or criticizing the originals for their lack of it were kind of silent, and these reactionaries and and people who apparently liked that Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones were Lily White or whatever were out in force, so I think that that mandated um, kind of this intervention that we 've gotten from some of the actors, which is nice to see, but yeah, just such a such a whiplash. To see things like that, especially, especially, you know, even if you go so far as to say Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones are supposed to be analogs for Great Britain or England or whatever, it's not like it's not like England and Britain are a hundred percent white country, nor have they ever been. So, like, they also
0: don't have dragons. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, I, I'm trying to get right. into you know what people kind of allege on either side like if if that's your most logical argument you know there's no place in in the world or in world history that's only had like one kind of person uh living there so yeah that doesn't really track for me and yeah i mean like you say it's it's a fantasy world anything can happen if you can accept the existence of elves and dwarves in the first place you know what's wrong with seeing a black elf why is that like a bridge too far especially with the with the harfoots Um, Because they're such a a found community and kind of this nomadic refugee people, it totally makes sense that they wouldn't look like, you know, they wouldn't all look like each other necessarily, which I think is great and, and adds to the texture of this world. And, you know, the more the more kinds of different people there are on screen, you know, for me, the more fun it is to to look at and watch and see different kinds of people and different kinds of characters. So yeah, I don't I don't understand. I mean as as always, I guess I don't really understand what the racists are, are talking about, but <laughs>
0: But yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, I think a lot of people love to pull the card of like, will Tolkien be turning in his grave? And I'm like, did you read Florida? Have you ever read anything Tolkien in the fact that, like, his, if there's one sort of unifying theme in Tolkien, it's that, you know, hey, all these like dwarves and elves and humans, they, you know, they don't get along and there are all these prejudices, but they have to overcome their dis- differences to work right. together. And like, guess what? You know, having people of different life experiences and, and, and people who look different is a good thing. Like, that's kind of the basic plot of everything Tolkien's ever written. Yeah. So that's something that I, you know, that's, that's something that feels very, very true to Tolkien. And and definitely you know, want to argue canon. I mean, I think you can't get more, you know, this is a story that has always been about inclusivity and, you know, uh, joining together with people who have different backgrounds than you. And
1: yeah, finding fellowship.
0: Exactly. It's all about fellowship and friendship. Well, I've been excited to get to meet all of these characters over the first three episodes. Um, I'm very curious to see where we go next. Is there anything else about this episode that we didn't talk about?
1: Yeah, I I, I meant to come back to, uh, I just wanted to say, since we were talking about death and the various viewpoints on, on death, uh, specifically in Numenor and, and how that's kind of made them mad at the elves that they used to ally with because they're now jealous of the elves' immortality. Uh, clearly, the Numenoreans, are, are, or at least the ones in power, are very afraid of death, and that's kind of manifesting a toxic turn in their politics. You know, there's a little bit of a theme of this episode because we also see how the Harfoots treat death. And, uh, you know, as a nomadic people who can't, you know visit the grave sites of their loved ones who die because they're moving on and they're never in the same place. I really loved this idea of, you know, telling stories and, and storytelling and, and remembering your people that way. Um, having some laughs, you know, talking about, oh, you know, I really did love that guy, but he sure was an idiot for getting stung to death <laughs> by bees. Uh, I, I, thought, I thought that was great and really lovely and in keeping with, you know, Tolkien's attitudes uh, towards death. So I thought that that was a great, cool scene and and maybe, you know, an explanation for why they didn't notice the stranger until he was bonking his head on everything uh, because they were so consumed kind of with their memorial ceremony. Um, and speaking of the stranger, I did just want to say if we're kind of keeping, you know, Gandalf watch, you know, our or watch for, for signs that this character might be who we think it is. Uh, Definitely banging his head on things that are too short in a halfling (laughs) uh, area. Check that off. You know, we saw obviously him playing with the fireflies at the end of the second episode, uh, but also has an affinity for fire itself. If this is Gandalf, it's a character who will one day wield the ring of fire and capable of bringing fire as a weapon.
0: And also just loves fireworks.
1: And loves fire, like loves fire in all its manifestations. And uh, if this is who that is we're seeing kind of his first uh, experiences with fire, both it's light giving properties and it's uh, destructive properties.
0: I like that. That's going to be a recurring segment. I think yeah. we're going to do off Watch. Watch. <laughs> We're going to do a checklist of all the all the signs and then watch. We're going to get to the end of the season and it's going to be like, surprise, it's It's not him.
1: Yeah, surprise, it's Saruman or whatever.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Or it's one of the blue wizards or something. Yeah, um, I would
1: love if it was one of the blue wizards.
0: I know I want to meet the blue wizards. That's one of my favorite. One of the things I love so much about Tolkien's work is that, you know, there are all these sort of like he was so careful about explaining everything. And here's a list of all like 95 of Aragorn's ancestors. And like, here's every King who ever ruled over Numenor, but mm-hmm. then like there, there were these two blue wizards. We don't really know what their names were. Eh, it's it's not important. Eh, Tom Bombadil, what's his deal? Whatever. We'll never yeah. really define it. We love a little mystery. We yeah. love a little mystery. I would love so, to
1: see some Bombadil. I mean, if he was Bombadil, I would love that too.
0: I mean, that would be objectively hilarious. But I think he would have started singing by now if he was Tom Bombadil.
1: Yeah, exactly. The best songs in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Perhaps you can, you know, if I can give in to one criticism of uh, of Lord of the Rings, maybe there are too many songs. But the Tom Bombadil ones really slap. And I sing them to myself sometimes.
0: They're bops. They're bangers. Yeah. <laughs> and on that note yeah, I'm going well, to go what listen better to note some,
1: is there to, <laughs> to end a discussion of of the discussion of Lord of the Rings on
0: music exactly I'm going to go I'm going to go listen to Sam's song about Gil Gallad or you know yeah. some, some Tom Bombadil song yeah. about Old Manuelo. <laughs> this has been Entertainment Weekly's All Rings Considered our thanks again to Lloyd Owen and Megan Richards for joining us and thank you to you for listening please join us next week as we break down episode 4
1: see you next week
0: And that's it for this episode of all rings considered if you liked what you heard follow rate the podcast and leave us a review on apple podcasts to keep the conversation going follow entertainment weekly on all socials at ew on twitter and at entertainment weekly everywhere else you can also tag us at at devin kogan and at cm holub
1: this episode of all rings considered is hosted by devin Cogan and christian holub produced by devin Cogan, christian holub chanel johnson sami junio lauren klein and dalton ross edited by Lauren Klein. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.